out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Indeed, we are, Jim. This is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as I'll be playing songs you know, some you don't, and some you should. As always, with a special guest this week, it's going to be the turn of Jackie Ham, one time member of Art. Or oh, she could still be a member of Art, in fact. They sometimes have a reunion. So I've got that interview, which um, I did a while ago, but I thought um, it's time to archive it and bring it out. So, um, what we're going to do, we're going to start with a track just to get you into the party mood, then the interview. This is going to be your favourite of mine. This is Sham Stack. No, Sham Shack. Basement of the 
I know, mesmerising stuff. That is art with a track titled Sham Shack. Hello, this is David Eastall. This is the C86 Show. And this week's special guest is going to be Jackie Ham from the band, who I spoke to and had a long interview with. So that is going to be mind-blowing. Um, but before we have the interview, which is, like I said, just going to change your life, I think we should do some admin, because I love admin. Um, you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just go to at C86show. And all these shows have been archived, and you can find them on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, Mixcloud. Anyway, you're bored. I'm bored now. Let's get on with the interview. This is me with Jackie, where we talked about life, love, poetry, and all that kind of groovy stuff. Well, you know, the interview, really. And then I'd been waffling on about the, uh, yes, when I got to uh, find out about the band, and a little bit about sort of, um, yes, the early years. And this was Jackie's answer. This is going to be quite a history lesson, so I hope you have pen, notepad, make notes. I will test you at the end. Jackie, tell us about those early years and much, much more. Well, we... um, God, I should almost read this because this is so... um, But um, essentially, uh, myself, Jackie Hamm, and Sally Young uh, grew up together in Connecticut, and we were friends from... Uh, we were 15 and we uh, were both very creative and musical and we had started we had both um, been um, improvising and making up songs since we were 10 on guitar and piano and we also just you know we started making up songs ourselves when we were 13 and when we got together um, we just started uh, playing a bit together and we decided in high school that we would have a band after university. And really, that's uh, sort of that, that's, that, that thing. So I was in New York. I had gone to NYU, um, among other things. I also went to Santa Cruz. Sally was at Bard. And um, I met Nina, um, who had come from England. She studied performance art at Hornsey. And she came to New York, uh, I think, in 76. She's a, bet. She's a little bit older than us. And she met Reese Chatham, who um, I don't know if you, if your people on the radio know of him, but he was someone who um, had studied um, with Lamont Young, and so there's this connection to the Velvet Underground because of of um, what's his name, uh, Tony Conrad right. played with Lamont Young, and then um, played with um, John Cale and Lou Reed uh, briefly. But they were very, it was of a piece. And one thing you could say is that the New York scene that we come out of really much comes from an amalgamation of um, free jazz, of the Velvet Underground, taking the avant-garde, responding to the avant-garde, and this very kind of raw thing. Um, and so it, our scene, the no-wave scene that we came out of, um, really was this between the avant-garde classical from um, Tony Conrad, L- Lamont Young, Terry Riley, um, a whole bunch of stuff in New York. Um, of the, the famous one is Einstein on the Beach with Phil Glass. Anyways, um, that kind of stuff at the same time as the free jazz, Eiler um, was kind of the most on a wavelength, Coltrane, Eiler. And then the Belvin Underground, and then um, who who really put some of those things that first appeared in the 60s, that um, bringing together those things. And you could say Suicide, which 
who were also, you know, the generation of Velvet Underground, and they started at the Mercer Arts Center in 72 at the same time as the New York Dolls. And these are all the things that started before us. And then there was the Ramones television and Talking Heads and Blondie, which started in the middle 70s. And they're all, you know, quite, quite older than us. We were very, very much into television. Uh, Little Johnny Jewel was their uh, split single. I don't know if you've heard it, it, which really had a bit of Eiler stuck in to to the guitar, even though it still was within rock. They, television, and Rich, then Richard Hell, because they were, at the time, it was Richard Hell and Tom Berlin, they were very into uh, the whole uh, Rimbaud and, and the poetry uh, dimension as we were. And the thing is that Sally and me in high school got turned on to free jazz and Rimbaud. And Rimbaud was the poet. Um, and we learned about Patti Smith, who was a poet in New York City, um, before she did her records. She was also this Rimbaud fanatic. And we were like, wow, how exciting. This cool woman is uh, totally into Rimbaud like we are. And so we watched her, and the next year she put out Horses, and we were like, of course, this is exactly on our wavelength, and it made so much sense. But I will say that you know we reacted against, because she was born in 46, we're born in the 50s, and we re- really reacted against the whole uh, rock star hierarchy bullshit, the lead guitar and, and all that, that almost Led Zeppelin did to the the height that and and of course we despised uh prog rock genesis yes and everything it was off tight and we were going back to the roots and that really in a way no wave came from like just ignoring all rules going back to the essence and people were interacting with all sorts of different elements of that um like contortions had a jazz thing i mean and and james chance had come to new york and tried to play with some jazz things but he was kind of like too weird but he started playing with um lydia um ps jesus in an early rendition so that they oh my god i could just talk about the history right before we started because we're really the no wave thing was really dna mars T.S. Jesus, Contortions, Theoretical Girls. Um, the Theoretical Girls were more, which is Glenn Branca and Jeff Lone, they were more in the Soho thing. They, Jeff Lone had studied, he was he was more arty, as well Reese was. Reese, yes. so, so Nina, I just jumped to a whole history there. Um, <laughs> Nina came and met Reese and just learned guitar then, whereas Sally and me had been playing you know, guitar since we were 10, but like acoustic, we actually all really were playing electric guitar at the same time. We got together um, in the fall of 78, and we just, Nina, Sally, and me, and we just had a instant chemistry, and we were into the same aesthetic of pushing things further, and we very much were into improvising and then solidifying the improvisations rather than, um, you know, rather than imposing our... Had, although some things were, we came in with something and then responded to it. But, but we were very much in in that using like the free jazz improv ethos with the rock uh, sound and very much the raw rock sound of of televisions. And of course, Ramones. Um, you could say you know there's a direct line from Velvet Underground to Mars, 
and from a lot of the stuff that was going on with Rock to, to Ramones, and Ramones just kind of stripped it down. They're like the minimalist um, Rock thing. And all this, and Suicide, of course, who started before, were very much that. And all of that was, was very much our um, uh, aesthetic, our environment that we were we we were in and New York of course at that time in the 70s was a total wasteland and you could live very very cheap you could work hardly at all and pay your rent and at downtown New York was you know no one there was no such thing as gentrification you know we were able the artists were able to to and musicians and different people live very cheaply it was a ghetto Mm-hmm. But you know, it was um, you had this this space, and you also had time. You know, you could always pick up a job here and there if you had to. But um, it was it was great, and that very much uh, contributed to the whole the whole thing, and and the whole thing of like anything is possible. You know, it's like it was like we had a, a clean slate to do mm-hmm. our own thing. Yeah. So, t- ask me questions. <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> it's fascinating. Uh, yes, I sort of learned a lot there. Yes, because I remember I've sort of obviously seen quite a few documentaries about the music scene in New York, and I suppose yes. it's hard to imagine that during the seventies it was almost kind of an abandoned place that nobody really knew what to do with and so you had those kind of you had hip-hop you had punk and then you had that sort of disco scene but it was all a lot to do with I suppose incredibly cheap rent and um yes but at the yeah, same but time the, the, the disco thing well there's a whole side to that disco was going on and of course we were reacting against it but of course we also um appropriated it for our own use but there was a change that happened when studio 54 closed which was the uptown disco place when they closed a lot of that disco ethos which was hierarchical you know the the whole hard to get into the club and everything they came down and almost kind of took over changed uh, one of our clubs was the mud club that originally started it was uh, in our kind of world there was only about three or four clubs it was max's cbgb's it was hurrah's which up was uptown but it was one of our places and Tier 3, which was just a little bar that then opened, and we all played there, and then the Mud Club. And at first, the Mud Club was like our scene, our world, and then Studio 54 closed, and a lot of, and of course, things got hipper, and this is by 1980 or something, and so everybody was like gravitating there, and so in a way, disco, we thought, is an invading force, but musically, you know, people were always playing around with things, because in New York, what was so cool is, you know, um, well, especially in the summer, you know, there was no air conditioning and everybody was out all night. You couldn't sleep and you were out on the on the uh, fire escape virtually and people were blaring music all night. And, you know, it was, but this is primarily the summer. This didn't happen in the winter. But at the time, you know, you'd have Lady Marmalade, um, that disco thing, and you'd have Einstein on the beach blaring together. You know, and so that you'd hear these, you know, our exact um, thing, uh, and you'd hear jazz. You know, you'd hear these things, people, all this music merging and being blaring out. So it was, uh, it was, it was quite extraordinary. It was really cool. Yes. It was wonderful. It was Excellent. quite wonderful. And obviously, you know, you got together in the late 
um, 70s. 70s. And then your your first studio album came out quite a few years later. It was like 86, wasn't it? When when No, well, I think... Yeah, our our first thing came... Well, we actually did put a live tape out in December 81. Yes. But yeah, this is a whole story. I mean, the whole thing with New York is also that we had a a company. Uh, First of all, the whole thing is that New York was really our ghetto. There were a few things happening in Washington, D.C. Black Flag was happening in L.A. But basically, you know, it wasn't... uh, America was, was... controlled by the big business. And meanwhile, England had all this independency. Not only did they have Peel, who was absolutely essential, but Rough Trade, who set up their distribution thing, Cargo, and, and helped the, all these different independent um, people. To, so it was, it was a completely different thing. And you could go to Europe and tour, and you could tour around England. Whereas in America, it was very, very difficult. Now, Sonic Youth had a, a better time of it than us because they could pass as a rock band, you know, and they were able to travel and uh, tour around America. But they were also, like, about two years later than us. But, like, when what happened with us is that we... Um, I, I, I heard the fall at, late, but it was uh, it, it, in 1980, November 1980, uh, actually their live record, and I was absolutely electrified. And I was friends with Ed Ballman, at, who had 9-9 Records, who actually put out ESG and Liquid Liquid and a whole bunch of stuff. <clears throat> and he and I went and I said, wow, the fall. And he said, exactly. He said, like, they're completely on your wavelength, like they're coming to... Um, to to America, and I know the guy who's coming with them, Scott Peering, who later became a he was a promoter, and he worked with Rough Trade, and he helped us a great deal. But he absolutely broke the entire underground to the overground from New Order, Lit, Laurie Anderson, a whole bunch of the Smiths, you name it. But at the time, he was on tour with the Fall. We passed a tape to him. They were into us and said, "Look, if you come to England, we'll tour with you." And we were like, "Wow, great." At the same time, John Loder, of who was the engineer with Crass, I don't know if you know about Crass. Yes. Uh, yeah. He, uh, we, we met him in New York. He came and saw, saw some of his shows, and he said, look, if you get to England, I'll record you for free in the studio, <clears throat> Southern Studios. And we said, great. We had these two things. And then Nina's brother happened to be, Nina was English. Her brother was selling a house here, and we could just uh, live in this house for the time. So things came together. We came to England. We didn't mean to stay, but it just happened that way because we could operate here. But the thing is, is that we had put out, tried to put out, we had recorded um, a record, um, and one of the tracks came out on um, Hits, Crip- Hits, Corruptions, and Lies, which uh, was a uh, a um, compilation in the 80s. It called Amphetta Speak, and it, it was later put out by Soul Jazz. But um, that single was supposed to come out. We recorded it in February 80, but um, Charles Ball of Lust and Lust, um, who had put out Lydia and, and um, had been associated with Ork um, in the beginning, Terry Ork, who put out um, television, etc. Anyways, Charles Ball didn't went AWOL right when our record was coming out. We already had the party. It was already pressed. Everything was, you know, it, no, it wasn't pressed, but it was recorded. <clears throat> Sorry, That's but right. it was to come out, and then he went AWOL. And so that was uh, in, like, June, July 80, or, or the summer of 80. So it was a terrible disappointment. And, apparent, you know, essentially, uh, New York was 
we were we couldn't operate very hard for us i mean it was it was really a ghetto so when we had this opportunity to go to england and then peel we could peel played us peel sessions um but we you know we still were weirdos for like um rough trade or something they wouldn't quite take us we were and particularly since they were moving more toward the smith angle yes um but they helped us um um at the same time you know kind of uh, and through we put out our tape through their distribution arm um cargo and that was part of our trade virtually or, i mean they were very much um with that whole thing but and supporting many many different the whole thing so it was great for us but yes. we didn't but it took us a long time we then had to to essentially um record things late at night and we we we're able to do it at cold storage. Rough trade was connected with cold storage so that we did something in 82, but it didn't come out till 84 or five. And then we did a, a record again at cold storage, 84 with Tim Hodgkinson, who was then kind of um, part of it. Um, you know, it changed hands so that he could engineer us for free. Virtually it was his own, you know, whatever, but it was stuff like that. It was very hard to, to, to make records until blast first. Yes. I was going to ask you about blast first, because obviously one of the compilations I got and was very excited by was this kind of single box set, which was called the devil's jukebox that again, you appeared on as well, didn't you? And, um, yes. And alongside people like Sonic Youth and Big Black and the Butthole Surface. So oh, you cut out. Oh, have I? Yeah, you cut out all there, but I, I know who, yeah. It was essentially a compilation of all blasters. I took one or two songs from each person. And what was your relationship like you're, with You're that? cutting out. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. It's a strange one, actually. Yeah, mm. you're cutting out so, so sometimes. Um, well, we had actually met Paul um, way before we actually got on Blast First. I mean, he was one of the people that we met that was into our drift. And Lydia had, had actually <coughs> um, contacted him. He, he of course, Paul was part... Was, had a thing, double vision with Cabaret Voltaire, and Lydia uh, approached him to do something. And of course, Cabaret Voltaire said, this, "Hold on." <coughs> Cabaret Voltaire said, "This is a little too wild," but, and so he, Paul, had to make a different label. I, and I, I actually think Lydia called it double. Uh, Might have been Widow's Peak. So first Lydia did that, and then Lydia essentially almost was like the AR person for Paul because she got them th- Thurston. Um, she gave the tape to Thurston, and the Sonic Youth had been going for about a couple of years now. They started like in 81. We knew them forever before they were Sonic Youth, essentially. Yes. Um, but anyways, they got the tape, and of course Paul was like absolutely madly in love with Sonic Youth. So he, that's what, as soon as he could, he was putting Sonic Youth out and like we already knew him but he was waiting um, I mean we were I mean he he, he was behind us you know I mean it's like he heard he saw that Sonic Youth were really uh, populist as opposed to we were a hard we were a hard dose yes. and so um, he there was a delay you know we had to wait for Sonic Youth to put out a couple of records before we got to put out our records but he got to us in 87 he put out we put out a live compilation, Early Live Life, and then he put us in the studio to record in Guts House, and that was uh, fantastic. That was the first time we had 
so much time um, together. And we had a great person to work with, Paul Kendall, who was Mute's uh, kind of house uh, engineer. Um, because, you know, Bluffert was, was part of Mute. I mean, it was very much Daniel being this great kind of helper of, of the, the independent stuff that was going on. I mean, the, the radical stuff that was going on, even though it wasn't his drift, which was, you know, more uh, electronic. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. I'm okay, I, I'm just saying this only because sometimes my phone goes in and out. And no, I no, no. To make your, sure. your, your reception is fantastic, I think. Okay, um... great. Excellent. <laughs> Excellent. That's all. But anyway, so we did um, uh, then did uh, two, two records. You know, we, we did the, the, the live compilation and then In Guts House. In Guts House was recorded in May 87, then it came out the next year, March 88. And then we recorded Griller in like January, February '89. That came out in November '89. Um, but um, we then broke up. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, was it a relief to be on Blast first? Because obviously, from England and being into John Peel and all this alternative stuff, um, sometimes being on a particular label was, you know, you just as a punter, as a as a sort of consumer, you just thought, oh yes, anything that comes on that label, I'll just buy. So obviously, it must have been well. It must have been quite yeah. handy feeling a bit more part of this kind of, I don't well, know, club. Well, the thing is that we were, we were older. I mean, we, actually, I mean, Sonic, Sonic Youth is around the same age. I mean, different, Kim's older than us, but Thurston's a little younger, Lee's the same age. But that was, you know, we we had been doing our thing, and Paul came and got us, and then kind of, then, then, like you know, the butthole surfers are kind of a couple years behind us. So it's like we were in a different position from how you're looking at it. It's not like you know, Blast first became what it did, but we were there from and knew of Paul. I mean, he was into our thing, and then uh, made Blast first that way. Yes. Um, but it was sort of you know, we were we had to wait. We had to wait for a culture. To, to, to catch up so it wasn't like oh yeah we're really happy about blast first no it was like it was like yeah we're happy cultures like woken up but yeah of course of course it was incredibly cool and especially you know um albini black big black was uh fantastic um butthole surfers you know we you know that we those things happened were happening in america yes um it was great and and sort of, I mean, obviously, you know, I've sort of done a lot of these um, interviews with bands now over the last few years. And one thing I've sort of um, got and, and sort of understood is this kind of almost a four to five year narrative where a band gets together and they do the odd album. You know, or they normally do a single thing. Oh, that sounds quite good. And then John Peel would play it. And then they do a John Peel session, do the album, do a tour. And then they have that tricky second album, which often is, is kind of not not always that successful. If they ever do America, that always completely breaks a band, I've found. And then sort of by well, the second... Just, that's a hard thing. And then by the second or third, you know, things just haven't slightly... Things have slightly got out of... Um, the dynamics within the band aren't great. The, the sort of the... they have No one's really sort of thought about the admin and who, the legality sometimes with, you know, like who's managing and the finances and stuff. And well, then, there's, always, there's always that practical thing, but I'll have to say that we really didn't have any of that. We had the opposite, really, because we had... And we were very much not in any way um, in, in a normal pattern of we we were doing music for itself 
we did not have expectations or we were not geared to to being able to to be huge or whatever or anything because we knew we were doing dissonant music um and it when the culture got more open to it um they would get more into it we were doing it regardless of what was going on around us and of course we it took us forever to get i mean sonic youth got a record out way before us you know but we had been going three years before them you know we had bad luck in terms of being able to put things out contemporary contemporaneously that's not the right way at the same time as we they were made you know we we had a, a lot of frustrations and delays we did the session with loader and we it, it it just didn't work out very much we used one thing this bliss from it on the our first ep but you know we there were different situations for us and of course we had been in america america by 85 had started to get on the level where things were happening the fanzine thing happened um yes. and some more labels happened and the scene you know the underground had a viability it hadn't before so we we were so much waiting for things um to happen you know i mean in england was had, had just much more vibrant um independent scene but we no no we didn't have that experience that you're talking about you know when we stopped it was after being together 11 years and it was really we needed to break um we needed to be able to go and do our own things we were not there were you know the chemistry between us was not changed there were endless things we could always I mean we were very stimulating to each other we just have a unique great thing Yes. And that was never the problem, but we very much needed to break from being in a band. It's like a marriage, you know, and it's like we needed, after 11 years, we needed to go and do our own things. And, you know, it was also logistically, practically, Nina wanted to move to California, and we were, Sally and me were much more um, ensconced in in the U.K., so we didn't want to move to California. But anyway, <laughs> you know, it was there were just problems and things like that. So we didn't have... You know, we we stopped for our own personal things. We were not influenced by uh, whether we were successful or not. We did never got to, we toured America in, in 88 on the East and the South, but we never got the big tours. Um, we never got a huge amount of um, tr- being treated like... Uh, people might be treated <laughs> you know everything was a struggle um we hardly had any money you know yes. well we i think uh, yeah we were avant-garde you know we were we were we were weirdos uh, to a lot of people and did it feel so, um, i mean you obviously it sounds like you'd sort of planned to sort of call it a day in about 1990 i mean um was that something that everybody discussed and felt completely okay with well it was sort of like it happened from from what I said, like we really needed to take a break. It it might have. I mean, different ones of us have different ways of maybe thinking. Oh, this is the end, or like this is like a long term sabbatical, which is what I looked at. at it, and it, in fact, it it was. You know, we came back um, together, but um, in 2010. But you know, it's like doing the band. That was. It wasn't, you know, it was just, it, it happened organically, really. And it, it, uh, after 11 years, it was like we needed 
um, a change. We needed to go and explore doing our own thing. And yes. that, that was it, really. And what would you, with all your experience in the music world, what would you say to your 18-year-old self that would be possibly starting out in the, in the wonderful world that was music and rock and roll? Well, I mean, I, it's no different than now. I mean, you know, the reason me personally, it was, and, and really for all of us, but, but particularly me, it, it was a compulsion. You know, it's like I, I actually always thought of myself as a writer and was very verbal writing and still do in one sense, but I was musical and I couldn't deny it. And it was something that was overwhelming and it was a compulsion to do and it was sort of, I couldn't help it, you know. It, it, it is a hard life. Yes. Um, it's not, you know, I never associate um, creativity with money, you know. And, and in a way, when what the scene we came out of, it was absolutely in, unforeseeable that you could make any money. You know, the, the, that Sonic Youth were able to break had to do with a zeitgeist that happened, but they never expected it. None of us expected it, even though they were closer to being a traditional rock band. Nonetheless, we still had this dissonant thing that in in America was like really, you know, <laughs> you know, and you just you, you just never had any conception. And I think people later, you know, people got money, got given money and and treated like um you know, like Led Zeppelin were treated or whatever, you know, just, it was inconceivable to us. So I can't, and I still can't put those things together. Um, so I don't have anything with the money except, you know, yeah, I say to the, you know, anytime a record company gives you money, that's the only money you're getting and you keep it <laughs> because um, they will charge you. They're like a bank, you know, they charge you for everything. And that's even on a small level and that's on the, the bigger level. But, you know, yeah, you can sell records and make um, lots of money, but more likely, and almost everybody, you know, just gets their advance, and then they suddenly don't get any more money because the, the record companies claim every little thing you do. Yes. And often things you don't, would never choose to do, but that are, you know, put put it on your account. So that, that's, that's just like normal. But, yeah, no, I think people should follow their... Uh, what's inside them, you know, and 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 do it for that, and you know, know that you know, you it's it's very difficult to make a living, and it's very very hard life, and it's you know the whole thing with touring, even later, even if you have comfort, um, which we didn't have much of, um, it it's still hard. It's still a hard um, life touring. You Absolutely. Know, so, it's a difficult life. So, you know, yeah, people have to, the music, the, the compulsion or the, uh, for the music, the, the, the attachment to, to creating has to be strong to overcome all the, the very hard things, you know. And I, I mean, forget celebrity is like, I, I don't relate to that at all. And I think that whole thing now is, is very sad. Mm. You know, I'm hoping, hoping society moves away from it. Um, because it's it's very very shallow and and it, it's soul destroying, you know. And it's 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 and 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 also I, you know, people somehow think oh celebrities actually want that. I mean, often like the actors, they're they're forced to they're forced to be be, be taken out like meat and promote things. And 
you know, musicians are forced to kind of do interviews, I mean, when they're on a certain level and do this. I mean, now they can do videos and stuff, and in a way they have more, they can stay in the background. But the yes. whole social media thing is just, uh, it's, it's quite heavy, you know. I think that dimension is very, very hard. Yeah. On top of, you know, I think it's, it's, it's much harder for, um, on one hand, you know, the whole social media thing allows people to be free and do things themselves in one sense. But on the other hand, the marketing, being a brand, the whole, the, the, the presence of advertising, which is so sinister, and to get that into soul work, music is soul, soul, you know, one's soul, this is what you're, you're dealing with, and then to have it promoted like toothpaste, it's just, it's, it's just hor- horrific. Absolutely. But it was yeah. quite, it was quite interesting, because obviously during that period that, um, that, you know, you were part of that, I suppose, New York sort of punk scene and, and um, no wave scene. Obviously, like a lot of the bands I interviewed, you know, for this this was like quite indie pop, you know, so they're more, much more jingly English, mm. you know, British bands. Mm. Um, but then, you know, a lot of them, when it got to about 87, 88, realised that, A, they were kind of tired, exhausted. They, they you know, they were just knackered really um but then there was other music scenes that came up there was the that dance scene from manchester but also there was the grunge mm-hmm. scene that started to appear from seattle yeah. and sub pop yeah. so obviously you must have thought when you saw these bands like tad and nevada nirvana you must have thought hey you know we we were the sort of like we were not here first but you must have sort of related oh, a no, little, no, little bit yeah, to them. no no i didn't I mean, you know, this is this is just natural progressions. You know, we were very, very much ahead of our times. And Nirvana, I mean, the whole thing is like the year punk broke, which is like the Sonic Youth thing. And Sonic Youth very much got huge because of Nirvana. And no, I think uh, Kurt Cobain has a unique uh, talent. I think that, that they were a fantastic trio as well, but he himself has a unique talent of of bridging, you know, kind of our sensibility in New York, really, with um, the, these great tuneful songs that 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 um, everyone can relate to. I mean, where I think that you know our New York thing, we always we have the avant garde and the free jazz, and we have this this thing that requires a certain step to get to. And um, Nirvana just, they, they didn't have that, although they had some of that quality. So I don't begrudge at all their, although I think actually the fame for him, for Cobain, was, was a disaster. He would have been much happier on our level um, than, than Dilly. And I think that, that the whole fame thing uh, and being so huge was, was just, was, was really, really terrible for him. And so I, I have more, that's my response to that. But, you know, yes, of course, when we're making nothing and people are making millions, you know, we would like to have a little bit of, of it. So, I mean, it's the same principle as now, you know, pe- you have trillionaires and then people are so poor yes. um, at the bottom. And why cannot there be, you know, you know you, you, they can still have their millions, but can we just have some thousands instead <laughs> of pence? Yes. You know, exactly. <laughs> so, but no, I, I was into um, Nirvana. And of course, yeah, I really liked uh, Happy Mondays, the... Sean Rodgers singing had some really interesting things for me. Of course, we adored the fall, but you know, 
that was before that was our our generation but i you know i liked it and of course jungle to me was so exciting you know and particularly the early days because that there was so much polyrhythm and so much cut-ups and so much uh experimental stuff that people were then through dance through them dancing they were getting uh into these things that by osmosis and that made people more open to our drift and so and I was so excited by all that. It was so stimulating. Yes. You know, the early days of Jungle and, and so much stuff going on. You know, I, I, I love that. You know? yeah, well, I suppose we have grime now as well. But just also, yeah. I mean, obviously you had a quick reunion, didn't you, um, in 2010 and 2013. Did that feel quite... 11, 12. Yeah, well, we, we really were doing... We really toured in 2011. Oh, yes. Yeah, well, I, ha- I have another band. I mean, my other band that I've done since that is called Dial, and Dial, which is me, um, Rob Smith, who was in God, and um, Dom Weeks, who was in Furious Pig and Het. Um, we've been together, and Lou Cicatelli, who was in God, um, he's the drummer um, some of the time, but the three of us... We've been going, and we had a gig because we I've been putting records out um, on our own label, Seed, and well, also on other people's labels sometimes. But we were doing a gig, and I said to Art, "Do you want to open for us?" And everybody was 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 into it, so that's how it just happened. And then we did a tour in 2011 through 13. And we just have taken a break the last four years, but now we're reissuing every all our records, and and we're gigging again, and hopefully we'll gig um, next year. We're just doing one gig now at the Lexington on November seventh, Tuesday, and also um, we're playing the festival in Cortric, uh, Sonic City Festival, which Thurston is curating with, has this heat and Wire and the X and. Um, KG Hano and a whole bunch of, of cool stuff and Thurston's band. Fantastic. So um, we're we're now having another thing, but like the the thing is is that I have my other band. Um, Nina lives in California and can you know it's like organizing us being in the same place at the same time. But yes, we love playing together. So uh, you know if it was logistic, we would continue. Um, playing more regularly, but it is also hard, you know, dealing with it. Yes. Um, you know, it's harder when you're older. You just deal with all the the stress and chaos of <laughs> of, of of being in bands. Yeah. And that is a very true sentiment. Anyway, and that is also sadly the end of the interview. Thank you ever so much for listening. If you still are, you should be. That was fantastic. That also was Jackie Ham from Art with a bit of a musical education. I learned a lot from that. Anyway, this has been David Easel. This has been the C86 show. I will leave you with another track by the band. And uh, all I have to say is have a great week. This is Confidential. That's all I can say about it.
水滴